Gracious God and Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable to you through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. How many of you know what this is? You ever seen one of those? This is an ice axe. It's an ice axe. It's used in mountaineering. And it has um, kind of a broad end here. This is for cutting steps in ice. Like if you're going up an ice ridge, uh, you can hack steps. This long pointed end is to use as a brake. If you're sliding down a snow field, down a mountainside, you can you, know, you sit on your rear end and you slide down and you jam this point into the snow to break you or to slow you down, you can lift it up to speed you up, that sort of thing. And it has a pike here on the, on the bottom, on the end. This is to drive down into the ground. If you're on a slope, you can kind of stabilize yourself and uh, get your footing again by using this as, as something to secure you to the slope to hold on to. Now this ice axe, I actually uh, took on an airplane with me uh, back in 1972. I was going out to Wyoming uh, I was flying from Chicago to Riverton, Wyoming, and I carried the ice axe on the plane, and uh, I was going to take it to my seat, and the stewardess said, well, it might be better if you put it in this closet. There was a closet in first class. I was not in first class, but there was a closet there, and she said, I'd prefer if you put it in the closet rather than take it to your seat. And I said, well, okay. I said, but I don't want to forget it. Okay, and she said, no, we'll make sure that you have it when you leave, and they did, and I still have it now. Okay. Now, here's my question. <laughs> Do you think I could take that on a plane today? <laughs> there is no way. There is no way. No, uh, there, there's a word for that. It's called confiscation, right? They would confiscate the ice axe. They might confiscate me, too, if I insisted on taking it on board the plane. I remember being in an airport in Ethiopia and I just had a little bottle of water. I didn't want to drink the water from the fountain in that airport. And so I just bought a bottle of water. I'm running to the next plane. I'm going through security and the guy just, he opens up my backpack, takes the water and throws it over his shoulder. I said, I just bought that. He says, it's not allowed. Water. It's the way it is, right? Confiscation. I have a definition of that. Roman numeral number one, your sermon outline, page 11. Confiscation is when an authority figure takes something from someone of lesser authority. An authority figure does that sort of thing. For example, in a classroom, a teacher might confiscate a cell phone if the student's not paying attention to what's being taught. In fact, I saw a video of a teacher in uh, communist China taking a hammer to cell phones and then dumping them in water. They're not going to use those phones again. <laughs> That's confiscation. Uh, police will confiscate items. When they make a raid on a property, there may be stolen goods there and they'll confiscate those stolen goods for the purpose 
of returning them to the owner. And if they can't find the owner, then they'll auction these stolen goods off and use the money to buy body armor or something like that. Okay. That's confiscation. Now, something like that happens in our gospel reading for today. Jesus establishes his base of operations in Capernaum, which is by the Sea of Galilee. It's in the region of Galilee, and he calls people to follow him. And you've got to understand that as confiscation. Letter A, the goods being plundered are the disciples. And the one plundered is the devil. You've been stolen by the devil from God. All humanity has been since Genesis chapter 3. Satan is the ruler of this world. And the light of the gospel is pushing back the, the, the darkness. People are being confiscated to freedom from bondage to sin and Satan to the freedom of being children of God. Not servants any longer, but children of God. Number one, or how can someone enter a strong man's house? That's the world and the strong man is the devil. This is Jesus speaking. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? The strong man's the devil. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus binds the strong man by his word. His word has power. It does what it says. It is what we call a performative word. It does things. Our words, some of our words do things too. But his word always does. Number two, quoting Paul, for he, meaning Jesus, has rescued us, he's confiscated us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. And I cite from our gospel lesson there, Matthew 4, 16. Well, start at verse 15. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea. That's a road that led from up in Syria down along the Sea of Galilee over to the Mediterranean. That's the way of the road of the sea. Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness. The Greek word there means sitting in darkness. If you are in complete darkness, you're not going to walk around. You'll stumble and fall. That would be dangerous. No, when you're in complete darkness, you sit. That's all you can do. You're inert. You're inactive, spiritually speaking. The people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. And for those sitting in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. You see, that word darkness in the New Testament refers to spiritual bankruptcy. It is the inability, spiritually speaking, to do anything. To do anything. You must be rescued from without. The light is not within you. The light comes from outside of you and outside of me. On them a light 
has dawned. The light is not native to us. It's native to God. But he pierces the darkness with his presence. And then let her be that I may be his own. This is from uh, Luther's explanation to the Apostles' Creed. Um, I believe that Jesus is true God, born. He's true man, born of the Virgin Mary, true God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, death, and the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy and precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death, that I may be his own, that I may be his own, not a servant of the darkness, but a child of God. That is freedom. That is elevation. That's what Christ brings through the forgiveness of our sins and through a new status that only he can bestow as the Son of God himself, that we may be his. Not a slave of the devil, but a child of God. Roman numeral two, Jesus will not be found apart from his disciples, except when he goes to the cross. There he goes alone to do what only he can do. None of us can redeem another. We cannot deliver one another. We must be delivered by the one who is the deliverer, Jesus. He goes to the cross alone to do what only he can do, redeem humanity save the human race. There he's alone. But throughout the Gospels, apart from that, he's always with his disciples. John is in prison. Jesus begins to preach. And then he calls the disciples, and they're with him from that point on. Letter A, we are essential to his ministry. We're essential to his ministry. Not because we have something he lacks or something he needs, but because he chooses to use us. And we know this from experience. Jesus, God, ordinarily works through people. He works through doctors and nurses. He works through teachers and pastors and parents to provide what we need. This is how he chooses to work. This is why he made us. We are his instruments for the good of those around us. And what a privilege it is to be a part of his ministry, to be a part of the work that he is doing, whether it's in professional church work or whether it's in the home or whether it's in a place of business. We serve one another in love as we have been loved by him. We are essential to his ministry by his grace. Letter B, students ordinarily follow the rabbi of their choice, but Jesus chooses his followers. That's extraordinary. Jesus operates differently than an ordinary rabbi. He chooses us. Jesus said in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. He's the Lord, you see. You are a believer by his choice, not by yours. In our darkness, we would not choose the light. We run from the light. That's our condition. We flee from the light as Adam and Eve fled from the presence of God in the garden after sin. 
a guilty conscience does that to one. But he pursues us. He gives us a new heart, a new desire to follow. Roman numeral three, his word repent does what it says. It creates repentance. When he says repent, repentance is given. That turning takes place. Verse 17 in our gospel reading, just across the gutter, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent. And, and Luther says, when Jesus says to us repent, he makes all persons sinners. He reminds all persons that's what we are by nature. When he says repent, he makes all of us sinners. That's the preaching of the law. But there's more. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that is gospel. That gospel message of the kingdom is a message of forgiveness. It's a message of restoration. It's a message of reclamation. It is the pronouncement that you, although you were born a sinner, in God's eyes you're now righteous. You are now holy and pure, and we believe that by faith. I don't look holy and pure, neither do you. But we trust the Word, you see. We believe the Word of God. We believe in our righteousness. We believe in our holiness, in our justification. That's the gospel. Letter A, repentance is not merely a change of mind, but a change of life direction. It is a change of life direction. It doesn't mean that you leave your job and go into missionary work, though, though you may, but it means you have a new set of priorities. There's a new center and circumference of your life, and that is Jesus Christ. His word, his agenda, his desires begin to dominate your thinking. And you're a different mother, a different father, a different husband, a different wife. It's a change of life direction. Letter B, his call is a complete and necessary disruption. It is a complete and necessary disruption or confiscation of our lives. I cite 1 Kings 19, where the prophet Elijah, he's getting burned out. Nothing he does seems to work out. Everybody's apostatizing from the worship of the true, one true God in Israel, and he's burned out. And so God relieves him of his responsibility, and he says, give your mantle to Elisha. And so Elijah takes his mantle, it's like a cloak, and he walks up to Elisha, who's plowing with oxen. He puts his mantle or cloak over Elisha. And he says, in effect, follow me. Elisha leaves the oxen. Well, actually, they slaughter the oxen and have a feast using the yoke of the oxen as fuel for the fire. And he's called to a new life. He's called to fulfill the work of Elijah, to finish it. See, that's a disruption of one's life. The disciples in our gospel reading find their lives 
disrupted, changed forever. I can recall being in seminary and, and my, my desire in going to seminary was not to be a parish pastor. And I, I've shared this before, I think. Um, you have to be a pastor for a while, but, but I was focusing on an academic career. And so after getting the Master of Divinity degree, which is a, a professional degree, it's not an academic degree, it's a professional degree, I thought I'm gonna go on for academic work, and so I stayed for another master's degree, which was an academic degree. I finished the coursework, took a call to Texas, because you gotta be a pastor for a little while, right? Before you go back into academia. And Anna comes along. And I begin to have different thoughts. I think, you know, I need to be a husband. I need to be a father. But I'm finishing my thesis, I'm getting it done. I'm riding up on a train from Texas to St. Louis to defend my thesis. I defend the thesis, that goes really, really well. One of the profs says, well, you know he's gonna continue on with his doctorate. And I thought to myself, I didn't say this, but I thought to myself, no, I'm not. I'm going back, I'm gonna be a husband, I'm gonna be a father, I'm gonna be a pastor. And, and even this, going back on the train, I had a desire a very strong desire that I had not had previously. I wanted to do evangelism. Now, I hadn't thought about evangelism. My first two years being in Texas, I was working on my thesis. I was more focused on me and my ambition to be an academic. But coming back on the train, I had this desire to do evangelism. I came back and that's what I began to do. Now, ambition can be a dangerous thing. I'm not saying it's always bad, but it can be a dangerous thing. Even in church work, you can serve the idol of self. Even in the ministry, you can be turned inward on yourself and away from the needs of other people. And that is to say, even professional church workers need disruption in our lives. Even we need a change of direction from being turned inward on ourselves rather than being turned outward toward the service of those around us. And number two, Jesus did not come to be part of your life. He came to be your life. He came to be your life. Now, you know as well as I, we live in a consumeristic culture, and we acquire more and more things. We may even acquire a husband or a wife, and we get married, and the ceremony is over, and we are tempted to think, well, I've taken care of that marriage thing now. I can move on and pursue other interests. Now you know that doesn't work in marriage. And it doesn't work with Jesus either. He is not just one more item on your shelf. He's not one more interest among many other interests that you may have. Jesus is not a hobby like knitting or woodworking that you can come and go from. Jesus is the life you are called to live. He's the light by which you walk. He is true food and true drink. And all other food and drink is merely symbolic of him. He's the clothing that you wear. In baptism, you were clothed with Christ. You were clothed with his righteousness. He's the ground 
on which you stand before God and one another with a clean conscience. He's your identity. You're part of him. You are members of his body of the church. He is your forgiveness. He is your boldness in the face of death. He is your confidence on the day of judgment. He is not part of your life. He is your life. Now, sometimes when the police make a raid, there's stolen property which they must confiscate and return to the rightful owner. And the entire Gospel of Matthew, and in fact all four Gospels, are the account of Jesus confiscating human beings, plundering the devil's domain. Jesus said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. It is that message of the cross, that message of Christ's redeeming work, that binds the devil and it renders him powerless so that we are freed from his grip. Now, according to our gospel lesson, Capernaum and all Galilee was a very dark place. The prophet Isaiah referred to that region as the shadow of death. In our gospel lesson for today, Jesus enters Capernaum in order to plunder it, to confiscate its people and return them to God. And you know as well as I, darkness is not limited to Capernaum. Death's shadow hangs over Columbus. Darkness dwells here also. Confiscation occurs when an authority figure, that is Jesus, takes something, that is you, from someone of lesser authority, that is the devil. Jesus snatches us out of the domain of darkness and returns us to our rightful owner, that being God. And it's not wrong to say that we've been returned to our owner like so much property. But the scripture has a better way to say it. I think a much more charitable way to characterize it. Jesus has returned us not just to our owner, but he has returned us to our Father. He has returned us to our Father's house and to the family of God, the eternal family that all of us are part of. We no longer serve the devil. We are servants of none. We are children of God. We no longer sit in darkness, unable to move. We no longer sit in the shadow of death. We now walk, and we walk in the light of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.